Hello everyone, and welcome back to Right Click Radio, the podcast which puts NFTs in context and considers the latest trends in Web3. In this episode, Imana Dufu speaks to Nancy Baker Cahill about how the blockchain can help turn public art into a new caring economy. And make sure to check out her recent essay, Proof of Power, on Right Click Save. I just want to start off, like I said before, it's a pleasure to be interviewing you. I really find your work fascinating and it's amazing to see an established artist like yourself that is so future focused. And I think that that is something that I really admire. So I'm interested in learning more about the aha moment where you realized you could expand your already robust studio practice by using AR and VR technologies and essentially bring your work into the digital age. So I guess what I'm really curious about is whether there was a moment where things just clicked and also, I wanted to know about that transition into incorporating these technologies. Was it more of a gradual process? And if it was a gradual process, was there a learning curve? And how did you deal with any technical barriers to entry? I've always had a practice that has had one foot in technology and one in this more analog space. So, But drawing is at the heart of everything. Drawing is the beginning and end of, of everything that I do. But yeah, so when I returned to a practice a little bit later in life, after I'd made a bunch of decisions that led me away from my art practice, I really chose to focus mostly on drawing and video to some extent. And so to answer your question about the sort of like aha moment, I definitely had one and it was a really exciting moment, but it was for grounded by a series of choices and decisions and challenges that preceded it. So for example, when I look back, I realized like, oh my God, you know, I was trying to create these immersive embodied experiences in a variety of different contexts. And I was kind of almost there, but not fully, not in the way that VR certainly allows for. And those attempts were informed by the conceptual exigencies of the work. So when I did this immersive exhibition at the now defunct Pasadena Museum of California Art, I really wanted to put viewers inside of a body, essentially, an abstracted experience, but one that was multisensory and immersive. So it was sort of my attempt at VR without understanding that I was trying to make VR. And that goes for some of the video work that I did as well. But your question of, was it difficult? What was that aha moment? It came out of actually an amazing conversation I had with a curator. I had been struggling with some of my large scale drawings. I I did this whole series called SIRDS, which is a term for a certain mathematical concept that had been inspired by a book written by a feminist philosopher who was talking a lot about trauma in the body and the way that she was processing her own trauma through philosophical math. And I just found it unbelievably generative. And so I had tried to use that as a springboard and I made these drawings and people had really intense visceral reactions to them. And I realized that I really wanted to amplify those reactions or that experience to deepen and amplify it and expand on it. And so I had a series of creative fits and starts. You know, I tried working with sculpture. I tried making everything 3D. Try and try again. I just became frustrated with the limitations of the materials. And I was, I'll admit, complaining about this to a curator I really liked. And she was like, I don't understand. Like, why don't you just make it in VR? This was back in like 2015. And I was like, VR, VR, like, oh my God, I hadn't thought about VR since I was an undergraduate. Because when I was an undergraduate in college, I would say my twin passions were art and political theory. And I had learned a lot about VR and political theory. But at the time, it was largely speculative. It was more sort of theoretical. It was, what if we could use this technology to achieve these very specific goals politically. So I hadn't really imagined it in an art context up until that point. 
and the aha moment, you would think it would be right at that moment, but actually the aha moment was when I first tried VR. That was this sort of transcendent, heart pounding, fall in love. All I ever want to do ever is both experience this and create in this space. And in terms of onboarding and feeling barriers to entry, I was really, really lucky that my brother-in-law at the time had a VFX company Mm -hmm. and he and my son built me this amazing sort of Mad Max PC. I mean, he said, look, just get your hands on any drawing software. And it was when I actually started drawing in 360 and having that experience that I just, I was like a goner and I've sort of had the fever ever since. So kind of building on that, I'm just curious about how Beyond AR expanded the possibilities and application of your artistic practice and also what unique qualities does AR and VR possess that can't be recreated on paper or on canvas? It's such a great question. I mean, I think the great opportunity of all immersive media is the ability to touch or tap into a different type of consciousness. And I know that probably sounds really abstract and strange, but I feel personally, whether it's in AR where your sensory information is not just mediated by the added digital layer, but by the ground you're standing on, by the ambient sounds around you, by the texture, flavor, temperature of the air in that sense, but also in VR where it's a much more controlled immersive environment that it can amplify and expand whatever it is you're trying to achieve in 2D, but place your body. I mean, there's so much to be learned and explored around embodied consciousness, how we learn, how we feel, how we imagine, how we perceive when we encounter these elements essentially around our bodies and how do we interact with those things. And it's my personal opinion that that's part of the quote unquote embrainment, you know, more than even the embodiment, the embrainment of the experience and how it then lives in your memory, it lives in your mind muscles that lives in these kinds of less obvious ways that we experience work. For me, for making work that is intentionally speaking some of the language of the visceral and of the embodied, it's just a very natural next step. And I've always really been interested in the ways in which art works on our consciousness, regardless of medium, right? But this itself, for lack of a better word, like allows you to turn it up to 11 and to really, really get into arenas and territories that are otherwise inaccessible. That makes a lot of sense, Todd, how this could be an expansion of you tapping into that. You started the fourth wall app, and that was something that kind of, you know, breaking barriers to entry of the public disengaging with VR and AR just out in the world. And I'm, I'm just curious about uh, the process and what are the factors that led you to creating it? And also, how does it democratize the public's ability to engage with VR and AR? There's a huge barrier to entry with virtual reality, you know, even now, I mean, of course, we can access it now through our browsers, there are all these ways in which we can participate and social VR has really exploded. But at the end of the day, for the kinds of art experiences, at least I was creating, you really did still need a headset and you needed this hardware, which is largely inaccessible to most people. And this was challenging for me because so much of my work prior to and continues to be concerned with issues of accessibility. So I went back to my team. I had the great opportunity to exhibit those VR drawings on billboards on the Sunset Strip, which was amazing. And it was a wonderful experience, but it wasn't, I thought, how do we get this into more hands, make it more participatory, more collaborative, and challenge what public art is or could be? I've never really been too keen on gatekeepers. And I thought, what if we could enter a dialogue, an invitational collaboration where the people who engage with the work, how could we translate those VR assets into AR and allow people to do with them as they wished and to create their own content and context for the work outside of any prescribed limitations, contexts, et cetera. So that was one of 
of the great initial reasons for doing it. And also, I always get uncomfortable with the idea of democratizing anything because at the end of the day, you know, there's a huge portion of the population that doesn't even have access to electricity. So on some level, we're relying on a degree of privilege to assume that we have a phone or a phone can, that can support AR software. But to the extent that you could experience these things anywhere you wanted, anywhere in the world, it did become this kind of impromptu, networked collaboration with any number of strangers all over the world who brought their own imagination, their own insights, and their own ideas into this virtual space, essentially. And when people first started sharing what they were doing with these artworks and where they were putting them and how they were engaging with them performatively and putting their own bodies into these stories that they were creating and telling, it was just mind-blowing to me. I just thought, this is exactly what I hope art can be and should be, at least in the public sphere, where you want to make these things available to the broadest possible audience so that we can all be touched or moved or, or whatever it is that they prompt in the viewer and the viewer can have a different type of agency and control over how they experience it. Great. And I think that's a pretty good segue into my next question, because you're talking a lot about public art in the public sphere. So I think one thing when I was reading through information about you, I was kind of fascinated by how your work intersects augmented reality, virtual reality, and public art, which is something I literally have never thought about before. Like my first real entry into the art world was, you know, touring a public art project called In Search of the Truth by the visual artist Hank Willis Thomas around the U.S. leading up to the 2016 election. It was an inflatable speech bubble, and we set up in various locations, and people would come in and they would record videos about what the truth is to them. And we get all types of answers, people talking about politics. There was a lot of politics stuff because it was the election leading up to it. So your public art installation, Liberty Bell, it kind of reminds me of this project because, you know, specifically the importance and symbolic nature of the spaces in which you placed it and how it was built around capturing the political turbulence of the 2020 election. So I'm just curious, what inspired you to launch this project and what was your process of undertaking such a massive endeavor? Wow. Well, first of all, your project sounds incredible. And I think that these kinds of invitational interventions that are that sort of rich in content and invite that kind of participation are really inspiring. By 2018, I'd done a series of collaborative idea activations, collaborating with a bunch of different artists who I found, you know, incredibly rigorous in their practices, but who also had thematic interests that served the work and would serve the work, particularly in these pairings of AR artwork and specific site outside of any white cube, any, any sort of institution of permission. So I sort of already had an established practice of doing that. And then with my own work, doing the same. So using AR to, again, attempt to deepen conversation, to maybe call attention to certain issues, expanding, amplifying that opportunity through scaling and through these dramatic land art scale interventions. So that was already kind of an established part of my practice, which is why I think our production fund reached out and asked me to do this project. They said, look, we want to do an AR intervention in Philadelphia give it some thought, think about what that might mean, what that might look like, and let's go from there. And I remembered when I was a child, actually going to Philadelphia and seeing the Liberty Bell and remembering it, because to me, it was just this kind of astonishing moment as a wide-eyed, curious child. And I remember as a kid thinking like, wow, it's interesting that that bell is cracked. Why did they leave it cracked? And reflecting on that, I thought the very concept of liberty is a cracked 
concept because it, what do we mean by liberty? Liberty for whom? And what kind of liberty? And what does that mean through the lens of take the litany of challenges that we've faced historically from the sort of genocidal origins of the country to present? Everything from the history of slavery to the suppression of voting rights, which of course continues, to surveillance and surveillance capitalism, to white nationalism, uh, to the pandemic itself, which obviously we couldn't have anticipated. But when you kind of look at and, and gender inequity, I mean, there are just so many challenges to this idea of liberty, this quote, founding ideal that gets honestly trumpeted and pulled out to serve interests that I don't think are in the best public interest. In other words, I think it's a term that's highly contested and contestable. So sort of thinking about that even more broadly in terms of the moment that we were in and continue to be in, in terms of kind of radical polarization. And so how could we talk about a body politic or a polity in general abstractly and bring in all of these concepts, both through the articulation of a drawing, an animated drawing, and I, I chose to animate a kind of very, very abstracted bell as a series of threads of the American flag, and then on to, again, build on that and to drive the point home even further, have an accompanying soundtrack that I was so fortunate I collaborated with Anna Luisa Petrisco, who's an incredible sound artist that I collaborate with all the time. And together, we, you know, we sort of mapped out like, okay, what would a soundtrack that maps and traces dissonance, arrhythmia, you know, how can we talk about this struggle of, you can't really speak monolithically of a country that is made up of so many different countries and interests, but how could we kind of, to the best of our ability, summarize what felt like a really kind of broken moment and one of real struggle and create an experience that while it remains intact, it's clearly at odds with itself, which is how it feels. And so when I brought that concept back to the amazing people at our production fund, they said, well, let's expand this. And of course, when you really dig into where this might be most appropriate, it's everywhere, right? They, you know, And we decided, no, no, we have to narrow it down. Really, let's trace the origins of this country along the Eastern seaboard and have it end in Selma, Alabama, you know, the site of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, since it was going to be an election year, and really tie these things, tether them directly to ideas of democracy or lack of democracy, misinformation, disinformation, all the things that we were struggling with and, you know, police brutality at that time. And obviously, anytime you do one of these interventions, you really want to be thoughtful and intentional about how you engage with the community. So it was really important for us to do a lot of community engagement and talk to civic leaders and community stakeholders about the this process about the artwork and how we might engage more directly and have conversations about what it means to everyone else, because it's not really for me to weigh in and sort of opine on this. It's really, again, an invitation to discuss these things and to really wade into those sometimes uncomfortable, swampy, unclear areas where there are a lot of competing ideas and opinions and listen as thoughtfully as we can. I'm just curious about the process of how long did it take to not only to create all the infrastructure and the logistics, but also how it actually came out to the public. So whether was this in this all happened within a condensed amount of time or or was it over a couple months or I'm just curious. I would say from the sort of inception, from the moment we really talked about it and it became sort of a spark, it was about 18 months, I think. But certainly the sort of production, geolocation, all of the kind of outreach, that was in a more condensed amount of time, probably about six months is my guess. One of the major criticisms of blockchain technologies, including NFTs, is the havoc that they wreak on the environment. However, I find it kind of interesting that you are using these technologies to shed light on the potentially devastating effects of climate change and on our world and society. So 
So when engaging with your public artworks, specifically the ones that focus on climate change, what are you trying to communicate to the viewer? And I understand that it's probably different for each public artwork, but if there was a larger scale message that you were trying to communicate, I'm curious about that. And also, how does your public artwork help people to see the world anew? I think about my GPUs on my computer, any kind of digital work does, of course, exact some kind of toll on the energy grid. And part of what I love about augmented reality as a medium is that while, of course, it requires energy to create and produce these artworks, the actual and the phones that host them are sort of visual prostheses that we use. We are not digging up earth. We are not displacing flora and fauna. These are virtual. They are invisible to the naked eye, and they're only accessible through the camera lens of our phones. So in that sense, when we think about impact and impacting actual tangible earth, I think that's one of the more unspoken benefits of the medium of AR. When it comes to blockchain, and the more I learn, the more nuanced and complicated it becomes. Because of course, I think there's a real impulse in the discourse because people don't like to have nuanced conversations that one type of blockchain is bad, one type is good. And, you know, wherever you fall on that spectrum, that's some sort of referendum on the purity of your ideals as an artist. And I think that that's just a real mistake. One of the things I've been talking to other artists about this, that like, why is it incumbent on artists to be held to a standard of purity to which no one else is held? When we are the ones really pushing this conversation forward, sounding the alarm, having these conversations about environmental impact. We don't look to the hundred corporations or whatever it is that cause 70% of global warming. There's a kind of asymmetry and asymmetrical accountability. I'm going to go beyond saying I think it's inappropriate. I think it's criminal. And so what has been beautiful about this moment with blockchain is the scrutiny around the ways in which it taxes the energy grid. I don't think there's a whole lot of scrutiny around how it taxes the fiat currency grid, general banking. I remember speaking to a blockchain expert three years ago, and she said, just so you know, every bank transaction you have costs this much energy which was really sobering to me because I think we all kind of think everything else happens in a vacuum, but oh my God, NFTs. And I'm saying this to you as someone who has chosen to do the majority of my minting anyway on proof of stake blockchains. Here's a little inconvenient truth. Proof of stake blockchains, while yes, they don't do as much harm to the environment and don't tax the grid as much, have other implications and other externalities that are related to a kind of, I don't want to say elitism, but it's, it's a bit of a rich get richer situation. So there are economic externalities to those blockchains, whereas you could make a counter argument around proof of work in that regard, especially when you get into bigger additions, do have an enormous toll. So in other words, all of these choices that we make are fraught with compromise. And I think that that's the thing that I wish that we could talk a little bit more about is how do these compromises work? What do they ask of us in terms of our intentionality and how much we choose to research or engage with this? The more I read, I'm not more confused. I feel like it's more complex and these decisions become more and more complex. So I would say that my goal as an artist and given my history and and where I'd like to go is to just approach every single project with a level of scrutiny and intentionality and rigor that it all makes sense, no matter what it is, that it makes some kind of sense to use this blockchain versus that blockchain for this project and this blockchain versus that blockchain for that project. And I've been fortunate enough to do a bunch of different projects in a bunch of different contexts using a bunch of different blockchains and different platforms, including my own website. So it's very much a learning process, but I do think that we need to think about our respective impacts, not just as artists, as humans. And then we have to hold these other entities 
way more accountable than we do. Whether it's a government or a corporation, there is a disproportionate amount of responsibility here. So to the extent that these projects sort of allow for us to zero in on those things, I think it's great. But I also think that we should be mindful that for a lot of people, this is also how they're earning a living. And that one of the things that drew most artists I know to this space wasn't so much the kind of sexy allure of, you know, consensus algorithms, but the opportunity to be remunerated for our efforts and our labors without having to chase people down to do so, and to participate in a secondary market where we've been cut out up to this point. In other words, this is sort of a creed occur for empowering artists in general. And I just kind of wanted to also tap into your works that focus on climate change. What are you trying to communicate to the viewer when you are staging these public artworks? Like, for example, Mushroom Cloud, which you exhibited in Miami in 2021. So in this work, you're recreating a cataclysmic, perhaps nuclear explosion over the Atlantic Ocean that turns into a network of mycelial nodes. I'm just curious, what is this a metaphor for? I saw videos of it. It looks very beautiful, but I was trying to understand the underpinnings of what that could actually mean. And I guess on a metaphorical or on a larger scale level. Mm. I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's exactly the piece I was about to talk about. That's been a a piece that's had a really sort of interesting, long and evolving life. And it involves, I should say from the outset, a collaboration with another amazing art lawyer named Sarah Odenkirk. And a lot of my NFT projects deal with questions of accountability, like contract killers. But this is specifically related to the environment because I was originally invited by Arist, which is a new NFT platform that uses the Algorand blockchain to create large-scale AR intervention in Miami. And so when I thought about Miami and I thought about its vulnerability, and particularly in terms of its coastline, you know, this is really kind of ground zero for climate catastrophe. So I wanted to take a symbol of human-caused cataclysm, not a natural disaster, an unnatural disaster. And when this was conceived of, we also imagine this and it will continue to travel to endangered coastlines all over the world. But I'd also at the same time been doing other projects. I've done a lot of research on mycelial networks and I've done a few other projects that engage the idea of interdependence, interoperability, mutual aid, decentralized and distributive care in other projects that were of a civic nature, also AR projects, PS. One of them was also an AI project. So that was very much top of mind. And I was in these conversations with Sarah, my my lawyer, and we started ruminating on this and realized like, oh my God, we're actually talking about two different types of mushroom cloud. And what if we start with this symbol of annihilation, of self-annihilation and of extinction? And then while we've got everybody looking up, and I just learned about this idea, this concept of ergonomic awe, like while we have people looking up at the sky, take something that is traditionally buried, unseen, invisible, which are, you know, mycelial networks that support all carbon-based life, and have them spread in the way that they do in nature across the sky and have at each intersection a specific node as a kind of nod, obviously, to node-based computing and blockchain, but also to a networked future. And one that allows us to imagine or just for a moment consider our interdependence and the ways in which things that happen in Ukraine affect us here, things that happen in Brazil affect us here, that we are not living in these discrete bubbles, but actually our survival, our collective survival is going to depend on working collectively and on, in my opinion, more decentralized problem solving. So that was sort of the invitation to the viewer to consider this other future and how they might reimagine themselves as nodes, as nodes in the network, as nodes that communicate, that connect, that share. So that was sort of where it came from. And then it's been iterated since here in 
Los Angeles. I was able to collaborate with an amazing artist, Amelia Winger Bearskin, who has done a lot of work around land back and climate justice initiatives. But to start to walk the talk of the work too, and include her land back initiatives and the ways that she intends to redistribute those care in the structure of the NFT itself. So that's another way that we've tried to kind of build on and build out from the original concepts to step into action and to invite action and participation in very precise ways that have benefits far beyond what we can perhaps see or perceive.